Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by comedian and actor Sarah Silverman. Her career began back in 1993 when she was hired at just 22 years old as a writer and performer on SNL. Although she was not long for 30 Rockefeller, Silverman found her way out west, where she quickly made a name for herself as a provocative stand-up in Los Angeles. In between bit roles on programs like Seinfeld, The Larry Sanders Show, or Mr. Show with Bob and David, Silverman continued working on her craft. Then, in 2006, she released her debut special, Jesus is Magic, which, in retrospect, was kind of a precursor to the Sarah Silverman program on Comedy Central. That ran from 2007 to 2010. Over the last decade, Silverman has continued to make really interesting work. She's been the star of indie films like Take This Waltz and I Smile Back. She's written a memoir recently adapted into an off-Broadway musical entitled The Bedwetter. And she's released four comedy albums, including her latest for HBO, Sarah Silverman, Someone You Love. That special debuted back in May. If you haven't checked it out yet, it is worth watching. It's currently available to stream on Max. As you're about to hear, there are lots of reasons why... I wanted to sit with Sarah, especially in this moment. Beyond the special, she has this new podcast called The Sarah Silverman Podcast. Now, a whole lot of comedians and actors have podcasts these days, but what Sarah does on her show is actually really unique. It's mostly an old school call-in show where folks from around the world send in a voicemail and sometimes ask for advice, sometimes just offer feedback. And no matter the episode, what you find again and again on this show is Sarah connecting to people and offering them a space to be idiosyncratic, funny, flawed, deeply human, and all the things that I think she's really interested in doing in 2023 in these increasingly fractured anxiety-ridden times. So if you haven't checked out the Sarah Silverman podcast, I recommend you do so. We talk about the show a little bit at the beginning and end of this conversation. 
Before we get going on this Father's Day special, I just want to dedicate this episode to the late Donald Silverman. He was, of course, Sarah's father, who happened to pass away in early May. We talk about that a whole lot in this conversation. But his spirit, his generosity, his wit, his humor, it lives on and reverberates through our guest today, the great Sarah Silverman. Sarah. Sam. Welcome. Ah, oh, it's so nice to be here. This has been, uh, I was going to say this has been a long time coming, but I actually don't know if it has because one of the reasons I never invited you on the show, I'm, I'm going to get out in front of it now, is because when I first moved to Los Angeles, I went to one of your oh, parties. No. <laughs> oh, yeah? You know those ones you used to throw on the roof? Yeah. They were so fun. And I remember walking in. Oh. <laughs> I must have been 22 years old, 23 tops. And uh, I went to go get a drink. And above the punch bowl, there was a sign that read, No, I won't be on your podcast. No, no, no. I, but uh, that's how you're remembering it. It was something like that, right? I wrote, I have a big sign, and, it says, and I made it myself, and it says, no podcast solicitations, because the party's really special. I don't go to parties much. I don't, but I have this, or I did have this one party every year that I would throw on the roof of my old building where I used to live, and... um it was perfect. There was no conversation you would want to avoid. It was all people. Everyone who was there would know at least three people and would meet at least three people. Like, it's just what, that was true. Yeah. That's my best like description of the party is it's just like every kind of person and everyone's vulnerable, but everyone's safe. And you see someone like Diane fucking Keaton and she's just by herself going up to people like, hi, I'm Diane. Mm hmm. It's awesome. It was a great time. Yeah. And um, now you're here. Now I'm here. At long last. Finally. But, uh, you know, I didn't, I knew you only through basketball. Right. So I was just like this scrappy kid that I love who's awesome at basketball and we play basketball. But uh, then I listened to your podcast and I was like, oh my God, you're incredible. Get a load of this kid. Oh my God. <laughs> sounds like my mother. <laughs> um. How are you doing? That sounds loaded. And I'm guessing it might be because both my parents died this month. It feels a little disingenuous for me to start anywhere else, I think. Yeah, right, right. I can't just be like, so your new special here. <laughs> you know, I think I'm in like a, it. well, you know, grief. It comes in waves. It takes its own trajectory. It's none of my business where it goes. This happened with my mother years ago. I was like, you know, it doesn't hit until you're like in line at Gelson's. <laughs> you know, and then you start sobbing to the person behind you. Yeah, my stepmom, Janice, who's been, you know, in my life since I was seven, got pancreatic cancer over Christmas. I just, just, you know, crazy. Just And still we just were like, ah, she'll lick it. I mean, this is a woman who played her best golf like this year, you know. Like, Unbelievable. But, you know, that one really gets you. She was a fighter, though. She was a fighter. And, it, I, you know, it was, would have been better if they swapped uh, ailments <laughs> because if they did, my dad would not fight it and just go, ah, I'm just going to go. Give me palliative care. I lived a long life. and But she wanted to fight. And then he had something he probably could have fought. <laughs> <laughs> But um, was just like, nah, I want to be with Janice. You know, he had like kidney failure and he we promised him no more hospital. And I talked to his doctor and, and his doctor's like, you know, he, I, I as a professional, I need to say he should be in the hospital and he should be on dialysis. But as a human, I totally get it and respect it and probably would do the same thing. Mm. So um, I was happy in these circumstances to be able to go back. I was in the hallway talking to his doctor and then go back into his bedroom and go, Dad, 
No more medication. I mean, he was probably on 40 pills a day. This with food, this without food. This, you know, and he fucking hated it. And just completely maddening. Yeah. So I go, no more medicine. None. You're done. And we're all going to be here with you forever. <laughs> you know, all four sisters and two nieces and a nephew just kind of hunkered down in their apartment here in Los Angeles. And we were with them for both of them when they passed on. And with my dad, it was like such a celebration that night when we were like, that's it, you know, and we stayed in bed with him and we were laughing and he's singing the worms crawling, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. And we're laughing and singing and singing old songs. And, you know, I miss him. And and when you miss, you know, obviously I miss him from his more vital days, but I even kind of miss him from these last days where I was like just kissing his face all over and rubbing his silky hair. And it felt good on his head. I'd like rub his hair and and just being very intimate with him, you know, like changing him. Like he'd be like, I fucking I shit myself, you know? And then, and it, at first it was really scary. It was like, I had this assumption that he was, would be humiliated or embarrassed. And I go, dad, is, are you embarrassed that we're cleaning you up? And, you know, he goes, I don't give a shit. <laughs> and it became like, just a really special. It took like three of us and we'd roll him over on one side and I'd just be holding him and hugging him. And I'd go, you're my best friend. I love you so much. He'd go, I love you. I, you know, whatever. And I like, I didn't want to let go. And then we'd roll him on the other side and Adar, you know, his, my, his grandson, my nephew would get to hug him and go, I love you. I love you, Zade, you know, whatever. And then we're wiping, you know, like we're cleaning him up in it. The dream team. Yeah, the stream team. That's for you. <laughs> But I, it, I wasn't going to call it that. <laughs> but like we, it took a few days, but we really embraced it. And it became like getting him clean felt so good and it felt so good to do for him, you know, and and him not being embarrassed by it was just massive. You know, I like my therapist says, we're in skin suits, man. You know, But it's really is true. These are like these your, shells that our <laughs> selves are in. Is, huh? is your therapist Jeff Bridges from The Big Lebowski? <laughs> yeah, my therapist is the dude. He does kind of look like the dude. You said on a recent episode of your podcast that um, the thing about death is that it's all right for them because they're gone. Uh, yeah. It's just a pain in the ass for the rest of us here that miss them. Yeah, I take real comfort in that, that they're fine. We're the ones suffering. And right. I find that's comforting, you know. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean, listen, it, it could be true. It could not be true. It's a survival <laughs> skill like anything else, like religion or, you know, making fun of yourself before someone else does. It's all the same. But yeah. And thinking about them, your stepmother and your father, you dedicated this new special to them, right? <laughs> and you're like, how could you have known? Well, yeah. I mean, I shot the special exactly two months ago today, and it's already out. Like, it really turned over fast. And in doing the post stuff, I knew Janice was, she was in hospice at that, We, you know, it was hospice at that point. So I knew I wanted to dedicate it to Janice. And then a few days later, I texted my manager, partner, Amy, and I said, uh, yeah, we should probably dedicate it to both of them. <laughs> I mean, listen, we were, we're a dark family. I mean, my dad was making jokes. I don't know if I mentioned this one, but like, you know, we quadruple checked, like, this is really your choice, dad, right? You, you know, hospital. No, I don't want to fucking go to the hospital. I want to be with Janice, whatever. And we wanted to honor that. So about two days into it being t no turning back, he goes, uh, you know, I changed my mind. I want to live. And we're like, oh, my God, you're such an asshole. It was a split second where we we're like, Whoa. and then we knew he was fucking with us. I think anyone who watches your new special, it's called Someone You Love, will immediately understand, based on this conversation, where you get your morbid comedy from. Yeah. Like, it's very clearly your dad. And even in this new special, uh, my favorite pieces of material, I think, are around um, the anti-abortion activist 
and the anti-Semitism. <laughs> so I'm curious, what was it like to work out this material on tour, performing in states where abortion access is actively being taken away and yep. anti-Semitism is on the rise? It was really wild. So many states on the tour are abortions illegal. And it's really not big in the news. I mean, it's really not. It's bizarre. And nothing monumental or or massive or like things that are going to be historically huge feel that way in the moment. Mm. Yeah, I've said this before. It's like they're... This life doesn't suddenly go into slow motion or there's no music telling us how to feel or tell mm. or indicating that this is going to be this is a major event. These moments happen and then the next moment and the next moment, and the next moment and you're living regular life and you can't stop any, you know, stop all things and say this is like this huge moment in history. And yet in both this special and your podcast, you kind of keep returning to these subjects again and again in a way that you seem pretty undaunted by, does performing this material where you can't really disassociate because you're in front of real people mm. whose lives are being changed in the moment, does it relieve the fear and anxiety you feel about this time in America? Maybe. Yeah, I think there's like maybe some kind of pressure valve in it, you know? I mean, I just think it's like it's somewhere that I have control, like, you know, in comedy and also, I think when I talk about it, there's a big difference to me between politicians and billionaires who buy those politicians and the disingenuous laws that they pass and policies that take our rights away. I hope they go to the hell I don't believe in. But these protesters outside of abortion clinics, as angry as I get at them, they just believe, you know, like the, to me, there's a difference between the liars and the lied to and the more power misinformation has in our world, which is like kind of all the power in the world right now. And it's that's the most scary thing, really. They hear things like late term abortion and they think it's some whimsical thing that, you know, a woman who's pregnant wants to like terminate a large fetus or even, you know, Trump was pushing postborn babies. You know, like none of that happens. And now hundreds of thousands of women are, are are being forced to give birth to dead fetuses or babies that are will have horrible painful struggling moments of life before they die because yeah. they have potter syndrome or you know but but because of the law now they so it's very very dark and the misinformation is incredibly strong i understand what it is to believe something with your whole heart so much you want everyone to believe it. But if what you believe is righteous, you should be convincing other people using just only what is the truth. Facts. And fetuses are not poster size. They're only teeny tiny, you know. No, I love that joke. I think that's... <laughs> yeah, I say if they were poster size, I'd go, yeah, that's alive. You know, if they were poster size, they'd, these people would probably hunt them. But of course... can uh, <laughs> I should mention... For people listening to this, yeah, worried that, that maybe you've changed and you're only serious in this special, I feel like we should note that, that the show does open with a, an orgy joke. Yeah, it's a, like a joke book style joke. You know, that's fun. So I go, what, what did the Jewish mother say to her porn star daughter after watching her in a gangbang? You were the best one. <laughs> and then I have some tags, which are, my Sharon had all holes filled. <laughs> you know, Jewish mothers are so proud. But ultimately, that joke is about supportive parents. It is. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> when you were coming of age in the 1970s in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, like this, I was an infant in the 70s. It's not like I like I was like in high school coming of age. And you were poster size infant. Yes. In the 1970s. <laughs> coming of age in the 1980s. Your yeah. parents are split up by then. Mm -hmm. You're living with your mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you described her as a real life Diane Chambers. Yes. Who also struggled with depression. Yeah. When you were 12 years old. 
starting to fall in love with comedy. And you were on that school camping trip. Oh, my God. Hiking up Mount Cardigan. It was so weird to hear. Did a similar wave of depression wash over you at that age? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it really became like a weird foreshadowing in a fucked up way where so I, I was the my student president of this eighth grade camping trip that everyone in eighth grade at this my school would go on four days, Mount Cardigan. And I was terrified of going a chronic bedwetter. I had to hide pampers, large sized pampers in my sleeping bag. I cried the whole time. And like, you know, teachers asked why I like blamed it on like, I'm worried about my mom. I'm more, you know, whatever, like just instead of like, I'm just so homesick and I am scared I'm going to pee in my sleeping bag. (laughs) And it was a miserable, humiliating trip. I mean, nobody's fault. Everyone was, you know, teachers were wonderful and everyone was nice. It wasn't there wasn't a bully involved or anything anyone said, but it was miserable and I was mad at myself and um, embarrassed by my my behavior. And and we finally reach home. And my mom, who never picked me up from things, it was always my stepdad or someone else. My mom was kind of in bed a lot of the time. And, and she was a photographer, you know, and, and I was just so humiliated. I got off the bus and there she was. And she was just snap, 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 snap. And I am, I just want to get in the car and go home. I'm so humiliated. And and in that moment, depression gripped me for and for the and it lasted for the next three years. But that teenage you, like feeling that depression for the first time, you said once that your dad would come up with all kinds of schemes to fix me. What did those look like as a teenager? I went to a a psychiatrist and I was 13, very small for my age. And he said, uh, I'm going to give you a prescription for Xanax. And whenever you and it, that wasn't a thing back then. This was very new. And he said, whenever you feel low, you just take one. And then I went to my second appointment and he had hung himself. I, you know, it's, he didn't do it while I was in my, the session, but I remember. Did he have I, braces? He had braces on his teeth. Yeah. And I remember thinking, because I was in the waiting room. And I remember I read an entire People magazine, and I had never done that before. I got to the last page. I went, wow, I read a whole People magazine. And then I thought, wait a minute, it must be really late, you know? And it was this Victorian house that this psychiatrist shared with a hypnotist who I had gone to for bedwetting, you know, months earlier. Dr. Grimm was his name. Oof. But I read that whole People magazine, And then I look up and I see Dr. Grimm from upstairs with red eyes, sobbing with no bedside manner to this tiny little 13-year-old girl. And he said, uh, Dr. Riley hung himself. I mean, even then I was just like, that can't be the way to handle this, right? And then I I just had to wait until one of my parents picked me up. You know, there weren't cell phones or anything. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because... When I wrote the book, I talked to my parents and I said, I don't remember talking about it ever after that. I don't remember like going home and you sitting me down. I don't. And and I remember my dad going like, yeah, I don't either. I, I think we just like didn't talk about it. <laughs> it is so crazy. And th- th- so that's what I want to ask you about. Like you as a teenager, how the hell you grappled with all of that at that age? Like, how did you make sense of Okay, I guess I go back to school now. Well, I didn't. I, I, I stayed home from school for about three months, and my I lived with my mom, and she just couldn't make me. She, she didn't have the strength. So after you have a few, like, pretty ineffective therapists, was there another therapist after that? Well, the, the, the next psychiatrist I went to who was, like, a registered nurse whose husband was a doctor and he wrote the prescriptions. I mean, like, she really should be in jail, but she's probably dead of old age by now. I don't remember her name at all. I don't remember much about it other than she just kept upping it and upping it and upping it. And I was a 13-year-old taking 16 Xanax a day. I mean, I feel like I'm lying saying this. Four Xanax, four times a day. A 13-year-old, and again, teeny tiny for my age. I looked like I was nine. 
And I remember I kept all the empty bottles in a shoebox because I just thought this is going to kill me. And I it's like need something for like detectives to find. <laughs> but like my, you know, you didn't question doctors. My parents didn't question doctors. It, nobody did back then. And then eventually my mother found a psychiatrist, but he, thank God, got me off it and got me off really slowly. And I just remember sitting with my mom in his office and telling him what I was on and he he couldn't believe it. And it was kind of like this catch-all drug at the time where he said, this is a big deal. He said, my brother was put on Xanax for acne, which oh. I don't think, I, I guess that must have been a thing way back when, when they were finding all these uses for it, and stopped cold turkey and died. I was on 16 a day. So he's like, nailed into me like this is you can't just stop you're gonna take half of a pill less a week and it took you know six months or something and I just remember being at the bubbler aka water fountain and taking that last half and being myself again once the clouds have, have kind of parted and and you start to feel a little bit like yourself again I'm trying to understand you as a teenager like every night you'd look up at the ceiling and the words ah, would read. <laughs> still there, by the way. I love Steve Martin. Yeah. When you're not looking at the ceiling, uh, you would stay up late and watch late night television. Yes. You love David Letterman, but it was it was an episode uh, on the Johnny Carson show that really changed something for you. What What was that? I had this little TV in my room and um, my mom came upstairs and she goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. And she put on Johnny Carson and she said, um, this uh, guest is uh, she was Miss New Hampshire. Uh, um, her name was Jane Badler. And she was, you know, this actress, beautiful actress on on Johnny Carson. And I and Martin Mull was the first guest. And she says so cavalier, like it's no big deal that she was a bedwetter, you know, growing up. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was so sure that this would be the the biggest secret of my life, you know, that I was a bedwetter. I thought, oh, it'll be my greatest shame. I'll die if anyone finds out. And here she is making a joke of it in front of the whole world, you know, to me, the whole world, but I guess America. And it just, it blew my mind. Well, so that's, that, I'm fascinated. Like, you have this this bedwetting problem till you're about 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Did that in some way, like, embolden you to perform on stage? Because at that point where you're like, well, I already can work past that. Like, what what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, I think this is like the common thread with comedians, because like for me, it was like bedwetting or like being Jewish, being very hairy in a very blonde world. All these components made me funny because that's the survival skill of the oddball, you know, mm. of the, I would say 100% of comedians are become comedians as a, one of the survival skills of childhood, you know. So when you're 17 at uh, that Mexican restaurant called oh uh, my God. La Cantina. Yeah. It's in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. You go up there and perform this rendition of Memories oh, by Barbra so Streisand. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was called Mammaries. Very, very clever. It was about being flat-chested because I was. When you look back on that, like, young teenage Sarah getting out there, did you feel any fear? No, because, you know, I was like, I, I've peed at friends' houses at sleepover parties <laughs> where everyone, you know, like, there, this is, humiliation is like, this is nothing, you know, I, I know real humiliation. I, what, am I going to not make people laugh? That's going to kill me? No way. Like, who cares? And uh, I did, I, I opened at La Cantina for the band that was playing, and I bombed uh, epically. We actually and, have a clip from that night. <laughs> I wish we did. Oh, God. Maybe for the first time in the history of human civilization, someone was emboldened by bedwetting so much so that they moved to New York City, mm -hmm. enroll at NYU and spend their first year basically on the corner. Yeah. Passing out flyers to comedy clubs so that you could get four or five minutes on stage. That yeah. Night. Without having to like bring people. Right. Together. So 
when you do that at, at 18, 19 years old and you're in New York, do you remember that phone call you had with your father telling him that you weren't sure about going back to school? Well, I my call to my dad was that I wanted to take a year off and just do stand up and he supported it completely. Were you nervous about telling him that? Not I guess a little bit, but he was totally down with it. Like he was like, I think that's a good idea. And then when I went back, I was a drama major and I loved it. But I just felt like if I'm going to be at this expensive school, I can take acting classes outside of school. I want to like be a comic. I want to be an actor. I need information, you know. My just regular scholastic classes that I took were really interesting. And I, you know, and I liked that more. So I transferred to the arts and sciences school. But before I started, my dad called me and said, if you drop out of school, I'll pay your next three years rent, like as if it's your sophomore, junior, senior year. And utilities, you know, so it was like $350 rent, you know. You know, years later, in an interview in The Guardian, your dad said, my feeling was, you throw the bird up into the air, and if it falls down, you dust it off and throw it back up. And it all seemed fine to me. Sarah just seemed ready. Oh, my God. First of all, very impressed by this level of, holy shit, prep preparedness. But also, I, I don't remember that. That's so interesting. Like, that's kind of a, a smarty, interesting, thoughtful answer. You surprised that it came from him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was, well, I think I get a little bit of this from him there. He's like hidden smart. Like, I'm really dumb about a lot of things, but I'm like heart smart, kind of. He's heart smart, but like, he did all my money, you know, like he like managed my money like um all for the first like decade of doing stand up and then um one day he asked me what k meant and i horrifiedly went <laughs> thousand <laughs> and i was just like oh god i think i need to hire a professional and that was a scary conversation, but I, it, it, we just laughed, you know, because I go, you know, Dad, you're only getting older. Like, what am I going to do? You're going to die, and then I won't have somebody managing my money? I'm just going to do it now mm. and have someone else, you know, but... um, I mean, we started this conversation talking about your dad and then supportive parents. Yeah. And through the years, he really seemed like someone who full-heartedly believed in you. Totally believed in me. It's not the typical comedian story. Like, my, all of my parents, like, were completely... <laughs> but, you know, I've worked... You know, he paid for my rent those three years as if it were a sophomore, junior, senior year. And then I was hired on Saturday Night Live. I've always supported... Always supported myself since then. So, you know, worked out. So from 93 to 94, you work on SNL. Right at the end of 94... You're fired, something like yeah. that. Yeah, coincides right when I was born, and yeah, they they are said they it related? was yeah, it was the the birth of Sam Fragosa. 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 It's Mexican. Is it? Yeah. Are you Mexican? I'm fifty percent. That's so cool. I know. People always think it's Italian. Italian. I know. Ninety three to ninety four. You work on SNL. Yeah. Then you get fired. Then I'm born. Completely unrelated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You move to Los Angeles and, and start performing in L.A., mm -hmm. start performing here in 95. At that age, where you, like any young artist, are failing all the time. Oh, my God. How did you define yourself in response to that failure? What did that look like? Well, I didn't see it coming at all. I never see it coming, you know, like. Being so, fired? Yeah, yeah. So, um. With Saturday Night Live, I was like, it was like August. I was already like writing, you know, thinking of sketches for the next season and everything. And I was just like shocked. But they had done a big cleaning of, it wasn't just me. Like they cleaned house. Like a bunch of us got fired. But I definitely went through a, a long stretch of going, um, am I in show business anymore? I don't know if I am. Like I, I and I just went back to, you know, I'm, I, comics are lucky. Like we have stand up. So I just like, went back to one, you know, and, and just, just kept writing jokes and doing stand-up. And I met this young woman, Tracy Katsky. She was like 
fucking cool and like a beanie on smoking cigarettes. I was like, oh, she's so cool, you know. And she was just like, my roommate is moving out. If you want to move in, there's a, I have a room, you know, and I go, all right. All my stuff was already in like a cardboard wardrobe box. That was my closet. <laughs> just like taped it up, moved to L.A. Didn't think about it. I think that's like a really good, a real gift to just not think about stuff right. and just do it. Like any decision you make is just going to get you wherever you're going. Like, you know, I mean, it's too scary to think of how so many things have to go right for you to be on TV or this or anything, you know, like all in, in this business. It's just like so haphazard. But your intuition got you here. No, just like thoughtlessness, you know, just like, all right, you want to do this? Okay. It just, things just happen. One of the things that happened that I think is pretty formative is that you, um, you appear on the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. And on that show, of course, you met the late Gary Shandling. Well, no, I met him earlier. You met him earlier, right? I you met worked him with him on the show, yes. The way I met you, playing basketball. That's right. And... Sundays became my greatest joy. Every Sunday, basketball at Gary's. And it was just like whatever was going on in your life, whatever was happening, we had those Sundays and they were just joy. And I was so in love with him. And I he became such a good friend and um, mentor. You said once about him, he wanted us to learn what he had to learn the hard way. He served that to us on a silver platter. What did he want you to learn that that he had to learn the hard way? The two things that pop out to me are one was that no one is going to say that's too much for you, that you're the only one who can go, you know what, I can't do all that. And then just comedically, in terms of stand up, I learned so much about from him, you know, just the the power of the quiet moments between the words, you know, and being comfortable in those silences to not be afraid of it. And that's something that's, you know, not just about stand-up. I mean, once I really understood it, I saw it all around me. I mean, with my dad, when we would talk on the phone all the time, and if there was a quiet moment, I think he was terrified in it because he (laughs) would go, uh, 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 um, 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 uh, and he didn't think anything of it. I'm sure he wasn't even conscious of it. But to hear that and realize at one point, you know, like, oh, he's terrified of the of the quiet moments. After the break, more from comedian Sarah Silverman. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility, Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices. 
anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're on the Larry Sanders show in the uh, mid to late 90s. At the turn of the century, you put out, mm. you know, your first special, I think, in 2005. Yeah. The Sarah Silverman program in 2007. Now, as I said at the beginning of this, I do a lot of research for these. And there's so much I really didn't remember about that special or that show, probably because I was like 10 or 11 years old. Right. But I do remember some of it. And I rewatched a lot. Wow. I want to know what that comedy was like in that period. Right. And that's what makes it art, right? Because you watch it now and it's like riddled with problematic stuff. Unbelievably. <laughs> yeah. Some of it is really funny. It's totally different in the context of you and the world as Absolutely. it is. And some of it I'm like, the Sarah I know? No. Right. No. Not, not the Sarah you know. No. And it's not. <laughs> and it's not. So I am fascinated you know, people have given you a lot of grief about the bits that, that probably don't play now. And, and you know, that is what it is. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious. Yeah, You have this quote in Rolling Stone uh, in 2005. Oh boy. Where you said, I can't believe anyone not being interested in exploring taboos. Maybe it is the thing where a Catholic school. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe it's the thing where a Catholic school worker needs only to see the word pussy to get off. But a sex worker needs 10 little people and a juggler. A comic needs to make jokes about the most taboo topics about race or AIDS or fucked up sex to be able to get the full belly laugh for themselves. Yeah, okay. Is that how you saw it back then? I think that I it was part of what I saw and part of like, being influenced by comedy of that time. And it's interesting because there's some, there's a little bit of dishonesty there. And I believe in that you can be dishonest in comedy. You could say like, I mean, I think it's weird to say I have a cat if you don't have a cat, but I also like, you know, I, I think in my first special, I said that my, 
Nana was a and had a number on her arm and she didn't. <laughs> she was like born in America. But somebody's grandmother did, and that was okay for me. Like, so you find the lines or whatever. But what but what was dishonest about it was I said, like, and, and maybe it's true as well, but I go, some like, uh, what do I say? Some Christian He said, maybe it is a thing where a Catholic school worker needs only to see the word pussy to get off. Right. Okay. So how many times are you gonna make me say that? I'm I don't sorry. Say it. Forgive me. But I was that as a you know, like a teenager, I I, a friend of my older sister's, uh, someone who lived in her dorm, gave me a penthouse forum when I was 13. And and she had moved in with my dad. So it was just like in an empty room <laughs> bookshelf. And I would take it out every once in a while and just look at the word pussy to like <laughs> masturbate as a teenager. That's all it took. I mean, because I couldn't even believe it. I mean, I it, it had so much power. Wow. And then years later as a comedian... It I lost its power? It lost its power. It was like nothing. But for some reason, I say, oh, a Catholic school worker need only to see the word. Pu-. But that was me. That was you. Yeah, it was me. Of course. I mean, all those things are so taboo. I mean, I in a million years, I never thought I would talk about masturbation or wetting the bed or any of that stuff with ease and without immense shame. You know, <laughs> if that's how you saw your work then in 2005. How did it change after that? Well, working on the Sarah Summer program was really fun. And, and it was kind of born out of Jesus's magic, which like it's also problematic, you know, in, in lots of ways. But it was all based on me playing Sarah Silverman, a character that's not me, but named Sarah Silverman. And that character was this ignorant person who's wildly arrogant. And to, those two things together were really funny and kind of magical to me. An unreliable narrator. Yeah. And so she did racist things, thinking that she was being inclusive. She did, you know, I mean, it really is like, in a way, a lot of it was like the track of a of a liberal who is saying, oh, it was only 12 years ago. Well, 12 years ago is like another time. And I got more political in my comedy. I got, you know, I was more active. I made a video for Obama to get young Jews to visit their grandparents in Florida and and threaten not to visit if they don't vote for Obama. <laughs> you know, so I was doing all this stuff. But I was also, you know, in this show where I was playing a character. And, of course, looking back on it, the right can use a lot of memes and a lot of things I said in that special in that show. And take the quote and put it with a picture of me speaking at the Democratic National Convention. And and I got death threats because it was like taking me from Jesus's magic saying, like, I'm glad the Jews killed Jesus. I'd do it again. Like a, a complete character moment and wildly, like very, very clear if you're in that audience. I'm taking transcript from that and and putting it to a picture of me speaking at the Democratic National mm-hmm. Convention. You know, I got a lot of death threats from that. I I, I got um, there's a preacher saying killing me would be God's will. And and he got really like very visual about it, like knocking my teeth out. And that's what really gave me the chills like that, that element. So did the hate that came from that period, did that make you rethink what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it? Yeah. I mean, well, a lot of it I talked about in um my Hulu show. And uh, yeah, and and I brought things up that weren't hadn't ever been brought up about, you know, like when I wore blackface on this or something. And it wasn't like I brought it up because it was about to come out or something like I always try to use myself in ways that are unseemly, Mm. you know. And um, that episode when I'm in blackface you know, like most of the people in that episode are black, you know, there was like a, but you can't, like I talk about it on the Hulu show and I'm very clear about it. And I know that I can't erase it from existence, but somehow somebody did. You cannot see that episode. And I guess that's a good thing. But there's a still photo of me and that just has no context. It just looks like I put that on and thought it was funny, you Mm -hmm. know? There was context in the episode, and um, and you're not allowed to say that 
But there was. I'm not saying it's okay or that I do it now or that I don't very much wish I never did it. But there was. I think what I'm getting at is the, the character you were playing, it was this unreliable narrator. Right. The kind that Stephen Colbert made a career out of on The Colbert Report. And I do find it interesting that his show ended and... In many ways, your comedy kind of shifted right around the time Trump well, right. started running for president. Mm, yeah. It's in 2015. Well, that you know, it's funny because I got, had so much fun playing an ignorant, arrogant. But when the president became Donald Trump, who is exactly that pathology, he is an absolutely ignorant, arrogant. It wasn't so fun anymore. You mentioned I Love You, America. Yeah. The show came out in 2017, the year Trump starts his, uh, I guess we can call it presidency. (laughs) And it seemed like it was a program deeply inspired by your love of Mr. Rogers. Yes. And I guess I'm wondering, the thing you were after in that show, compassion, kindness, uh, talking to people, Across the aisle. Face to face with people and, you know, like it was like a, a, we aren't that different. Do you still believe that? I do. I mean, listen, I, I met with almost exclusively like Trump supporters and stuff and and went to their house and, and put myself in a position where they were hosting me. They were taking care of me. I was like the odd man out, you know, and Every single one of those homes I left, I felt loved by them and I loved them. Even when they have things that are annoying or or that I don't agree with, I you can see in their eyes where it's coming from or what it has to do with or where, you know, that show like we did two seasons, although they were called season one A and season one B. But I, I, I do feel like a, a good amount of people saw it for such a niche show. I mean, that's just, you know, like every time I'm a show I do is canceled or a pilot's not picked up, I always feel like, you know, they blew it. Why did they didn't get it? How could they? You know, it was like every reason why they were wrong. And it's just like it's their channel. It's their they could do what they want. You know, mm-hmm. it's like and I always get over it and then I can't imagine doing it now. Like, you know, I don't know. Do you think you can't imagine doing it now? Because in some ways you're doing it on the podcast? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I, I remember, like, my agents going, like, well, well, right before the, the pandemic, the special came out of a deal that was a pilot deal I did at HBO. I did a pilot right before the pandemic, and then they didn't pick it up, and I, I was like, they blew it! What were they? You know, like, <laughs> that's my reaction is, like, wow, they made such a mistake, <laughs> you know? But, like, I have no desire to do it now because I get that, itch satiated totally on my podcast where I can say anything I want. So the podcast itself, it features a lot of voicemails. Yeah, it's all voice. I'll I'll usually say something at the beginning or I'll talk about something that's on my mind. Sometimes we go right into voicemails. But the trajectory of the show is always just the voicemails. People asking for advice for the most part. Yeah. You know, I'm loose on it. I'm silly I suppose at times and I talk about like embarrassing things or but yeah I I don't I'm not really in charge of the direction it goes Mm -hmm. you know which I like I think that's kind of because your aim is to really hear the person out the stranger that's called in and I was thinking because I was I was listening to it this morning and I thought oh it's 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 strange but the thing you're doing is connecting with people and the way you're connecting with them really reminds me of how you've always described your father, which is someone who <laughs> moved through the world like open hearted and, and open minded, who would go to Starbucks really early and just like <laughs> talk to these women and befriend them. It was so hard to let people know about the his funeral because he had so many, like, islands of friends. He had, like, his girlfriends from Starbucks, you know, that he just knows them from Starbucks. Or, like, I mean, we were at Mendocino Farms, and um, he loved being old because it gave him a whole new, like, level of 
connection with people because he got away. You can get away with so much. You know, people find it charming. Or So we were at Mendocino Farms, and these two, like, huge musclehead guys are leaving, and they stop at our table and put their fists in my dad's face and go, like, you know, like, see you around. But they had, like, they did some tough guy, like, move with him. And they walk out, and I was like, what was that? And he's laughing, and he goes, Oh, I was refilling my Coke and I <laughs> I saw them and they were all muscly. So I went over and I go, you know what? I feel like kicking some ass. And he like put his fists up to them, you know, like he was threatening them. And, um, you know, they, of course, thought it was adorable and stopped <laughs> by the table all the way up. But there's always like he there's always someone he's already connected with, you know, if mm-hmm. he, you know, and it's it was so sweet. And I like that, too. I'm a people person, you know. Does that make sense? Like, do you feel in some ways this podcast of yours is, you know, you're not like an octogenarian, but it is uh, a license to connect with people in a way that is human. I guess I'm trying to say, do you feel like you're doing what your dad always did and showed you? Yes. He loved connecting with people. Yeah. He was like a real people person guy. You know, everyone loved him. I mean, he was like the go-to friend to make a speech or a toast at the whatever, you know. And, but yeah, that that desire for connection, you know, to be brutally honest, maybe the desire to be loved by a stranger, you know, um, which is, of course, like the plight of comedians, you know. But um, yeah, to connect with someone you don't, you know, in a grocery line or, you know, I don't know. My last, I guess, thing for you, or my last question. We started this conversation talking about, uh, you know, your dad, and and it's been what a, a month, not even, not even a month, three no, weeks, twenty days, twenty days, and it dawned on me that this this new project of yours, this podcast, it uses voicemails in such a great way, and there was really no one who mastered the art of the voicemail. <laughs> better than your father. Oh my God, I wish I still had those messages. Well, I have um, a couple of them that were in your book. I thought as we leave, since this is on Father's Day, yes. I wanted to read one of them in his voice. I would love to. Let's see, this is from 10, 14 years ago. Hey baby, guess who? It's your daddy. Happy Shabbos. I say that because your friend, Jeffrey Ross, is in Israel, and I've been spending time with your nieces. I took Shishi, that's my niece, Ashira, to Chuck E. Cheese twice. She is so fucking cute. Give me a call when you get a chance. Uh, uh, I leave in a couple of hours, but I'll be in my car for an hour or two. <laughs> know where I'm going? I'm going to my 50th fucking reunion of UNH. It took, God, I I remember this message. It took 50 fucking years to get here. Going through it, it was all those days with you and Lara and Jodine and Susie and aggravation and business and blah, blah, blah. And you look back on it, it seemed like it took 20 minutes. Whole goddamn thing. It's amazing. Took so long to get here just to look back so quickly. Wow. So watch out, because you're only going one way, and that's older. And once you can, yeah, this is, it's so true. (laughs) And once you can no longer do something, it's forever. I've been pretty goddamn lucky so far. I love you. That's my homily for, (laughs) that's my homily for the day. I love you. Give me a call if you get a chance, like if you're walking your dog or something boring like that, <laughs> and I'll talk to you later. Mwah. Uh, shut off phone. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was him. I'd hear him. Wow, isn't that funny? Like now he's dead, and it like has this beautiful meaning, and it is all so true. I mean, and it it's really helped me. Stuff like that, and also something that my sister said when I was dreading going to camp, which was every year because I just pissed myself every single night, and it was a nightmare. But she said, you know what? You're going to go through it, and it's all going to be a memory, and that's that. It's like 
so long life. But then when you look back on it, it's a blip. So every shitty thing you have to do that you don't want to do, you can just like exist through it. It probably won't even be as bad as you think. And when it's over, it's just like a, another blip. But one of those messages I know was, and I, I know have, by I heart, have, he goes, I know you're a big Hollywood hotshot now, but if you get a chance in your busy schedule, maybe you could uh, give the guy a call back who gave you life. Uh, I used to wipe the shit out from your tuchus. Maybe you could find a minute for me. <laughs> it was fucking disgusting. All right. Oh, is that what he says at the end? Oh, my God. Here it is. I remember when you were a tiny baby, I had to lift those tiny legs and wipe the shit out of your tuchus. It was fucking disgusting. All right, if you get a chance, I know you're busy. Give a call back to the guy who gave you life. <laughs> Love you, bye. <laughs> yeah. That line, um, it took so long to get here just to look back so quickly. Yeah, my God. It's deep. We've gone through... Shit, 52 years of time. Yeah. I don't know how you how you hold that line now that he's been gone, fuck, only 20 days. But that's just, I don't know, there's so much. When I when I read that in your book, I, I started, I lost it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, look at that. Like, now that has a whole new meaning, you know? It's interesting. He was awesome. Hmm. But this is what is. If I, if we both didn't love Gary Shandling, we would be uncomfortable with this moment. But, That's uh, right. <laughs> For the people at home, uh, Sam really looks like he might cry, and I am dead inside completely. For people at home, uh, I was going to cry, and then I realized um, Sarah doesn't do well with tears. So I just... <laughs> You know, this is an excellent ending, and you'll end it here, but uh, talking about connection and getting that from my dad, I mean, he loved sports because of that. He loved playing tennis or whatever, and, like, that was basketball for me. I say was because I don't know if I— I don't know if I'll be back. Maybe I'll give it a try, but What I just... can we do to pull you out of retirement? Uh, I, you know what? It was my joy playing basketball. It's so wonderful, like just connecting with people and meeting friends through all sorts of different things. And but, you know, it doesn't age well, basketball. But boy, I love it so much. And I was really like I would quit like a half hour early and stretch. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'll go back. I, I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just play half court games. But I really miss the Sunday game. Well, um, we've talked about a lot of things. Yeah. That that haven't aged well. It's true. That's true. This is, <laughs> this is actually perfect. But um, I'm hoping that this uh, podcast does. Thank you. Me too. I Me think too. it will. And uh, in the spirit of your show and for this Father's Day episode, we are winding down. Oh, Dad. And uh, I thank you so much for, for coming on, for sharing as much as you have, you know, for putting that sign up at that party. <laughs> that said no solicitation. No podcast solicitations. Sarah Silverman, a joy. Thank you. You Mexican. <gasps> oh, no! <laughs> He's half Mexican. Please end the tape there. Can we end it? <laughs> <laughs> or like a little before. <laughs> oh, my. Bye, sir. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. 
If you've already done that or just want to go above and beyond, sharing the show with a friend or posting on social media is still the best way for new listeners to find the program. You can tag us at TalkEasyPod on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, pretty much all of them. And this week, I want to thank our guest, Sarah Silverman, for coming on the program. Her new special, Someone You Love, is now available to stream on Max. If you'd like to learn more about her and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If this is your first time listening, or if you've been here for a minute, I'd recommend our talks with Bob Odenkirk, Abby Jacobson, Quinton Brunson, John Early, Nick Kroll, Meg Stalter, Norman Lear, and the great Carol Burnett. To hear those and more podcasts from Pushkin Industries, listen on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's episode was edited by CJ Mitchell. Special assistance from Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs today by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Un. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, happy Father's Day to you and yours. Stay safe and so long. sleep should come naturally and with the new natural hybrid mattress it can a collaboration between lisa and west elm the natural hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex natural wool and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow plus every purchase helps fuel lisa's work with shelters and those in need don't put off a good night's sleep any longer get a lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight visit lisa.com slash iheart that's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.